Section 33 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. By G.K. Chesterton. Section 33. The Precipice of Power by G. K. Chesterton. There is one earnest and almost ecstatic prayer that will be offered up by anyone who has a real sympathy both with England and with Ireland, and that is the prayer that the Irish people may not read the English papers, especially the sympathetic English papers. All the dreadful blows deliberately dealt at the Irish Free State by the Irish minority, even the irreparable loss of a hero like Michael Collins, are less disastrous than the blind blows unconsciously dealt by the poor bewildered English journalists, who are told to call him a hero, as they were once told to call him a criminal. It did Collins far less harm to kill him than to call him a loyal servant of the British Empire, and even of the coalition government. In that matter, the journalist was the immortal type of the man who never opens his mouth without putting his foot in it, and the foot was only too easily recognized as the cloven hoof. The combination of all this crass idiocy came the other day, when a coalitionist paper solemnly stated that there had always been a tender personal sympathy between Mr. Michael Collins and Mr. Lloyd George. De Valera would pay a good deal to be able to placard Ireland with that statement. It is no occasion for talking in a personal and acrimonious manner about the comparison. It is enough to imagine something of the mountainous difference if the comparison had really been complete. It is certainly more in sorrow than in anger that any man who cares for manhood will reflect on how much better it would have been with the soul of a certain person if it could have been complete. Suppose he had dedicated himself from boyhood only to the task, however wild it might seem, of the independence of Wales. Suppose he had carried on war in the Welsh mountains against the militarism of a mighty empire, till he wore out the will of the government and awakened the sympathy of the world. Suppose he had extorted self-government and restored the full tradition of Luan and the Barnes, and finally fallen fighting in his youth against the malcontents in his new Camorian kingdom. We, knowing to what low alternative the life of a man may lead, might well understand afresh a proverb about the love of the gods. And indeed the matter that moves me here is in no way personal, in the vulgar sense in which we speak of personalities. What is involved in the comparison is not so much a personality as a policy or a school of politicians. A hasty hostility might say, that the mystery of Michael Collins is why he was really shot at, while the mystery of Lloyd George is why he was not shot at. But I for one should protest against such a sentiment from every standpoint in the case of a man like Mr. George. I do not think him bad enough to be murdered or good enough to be martyred. I cannot, at the moment, think of anything in the world except being assassinated that could possibly put him in the right. And if I have another earnest and ecstatic prayer of the political sort to offer, it is that heaven may preserve the prime minister. But in truth, he is only one of a whole mob of modern politicians, no worse than many and better than some. And the comparison that concerns me is a comparison between such groups as a whole. The only possible value of the parallel between the two names is in a consideration of the different fate attending the two types of ruler and the two separate nations. And whatever our sorrow, we must have something servile about us if we doubt which fate has been the happier. It is right that the ruling of men should be a dangerous trade. Nobody wants it to be as dangerous as it is in Ireland, 
but it ought to be a great deal more dangerous than it is in England. It is the normal tradition of sane and spirited nations that power should be balanced by peril. The medieval kings were expected to lead in battle, as Michael Collins to the last was leading in battle. Not a few of them, like Richard I and Richard III, were killed in battle, as Michael Collins was killed in battle. That fact alone is enough to show that their military prominence was not a mere military parade like the uniforms of the German emperor. The nobles who sat at the great council of a medieval king were really held responsible and liable to punishment on the charges of treason and corruption. Not a few of them were in fact executed, exactly as if they were common Irish patriots. Even in later times, a great minister could pass rapidly from omnipotence to impotence and from impotence to extinction. If his towering success was a terror to others, it was also a terror to him. When the tyranny of Thomas Cromwell ended in his execution, a popular and powerful rhyme, which may be found, I think, in Percy's Valiques, contained the terrible but very Christian sentences, Save thou thy soul which Christ hath bought, but for thy body care thou not, let it suffer pain as it has wrought. When the black and tan terror was suddenly dropped, nobody suggested that Sir Hamar Greenwood should suffer pain as he had wrought, Nobody even circulated a rhyme recommending this expiation, as they did in the case of the great destroyer of the monks. In that connection, by the way, there is something decidedly amusing, for anyone who cares to look it up, in the note which Percy, as the polished parson of the rational 18th century, appended to that fierce fragment of the old popular religion of England. He speaks of it as a small piece of spitefulness, only to be explained by the private enmity of some courtier. To anybody who has read it, it is rather like saying that some powdered rival of Madame du Barry at Versailles was the only possible explanation of the Marseillaise. Of course, these comparisons are much too extreme. Dallas the Great did not always suffer for their crimes like Cromwell. Sometimes they rather suffered for their virtues like Collins. And Dallas, also, there is no friend of normal government who desires it to be conducted in such a savor of death and destruction as belonged to the tragedy of the Tudor transition or even to the high but unnatural indignation of the French Revolution, or the Irish Rebellion. Nevertheless, all these historic things contain the hint of what is really lacking in our own type of craven security and supine success. It is not merely a barbaric brutality, it is also a very intelligent instinct, which tells men that private life should be safe, but public life menacing. The modern politician has much more power than most kings in the past, but the financiers behind him are in possession of wealth covering a far more cosmopolitan area, and the faddists who follow him turn their legislation into a persecution of much more private things. Henry VIII could break into guild houses in England, but he could not have hoped to begin buying them up all over the world, and although he could abolish monasteries, he would have thought it sheer madness to abolish inns. But though the politicians have in some ways more influence than the kings, they have in most ways much less responsibility, and certainly much less risk. There was much to suggest to a king that the ceremony of putting on his crown might be a preliminary part of the ceremony of taking off his head. There is nothing to suggest to a modern politician that he risks even retirement from public life. It is only a man like Bottomley, who partly through the remains of honesty in him, has remained outside the inner ring, who suffers even for the most extreme moral extravagances. Even that was something of a shock though on the whole, a salutary one. It is a very ominous state of society when only the liars tell the truth. But there are far worse men 
than poor bottomly, men who do not tell the truth even by accident, who are much more secure, because they are more mischievous. Fraud and insolence in high places are safe so long as the places are high enough. But it was a much more wise and imaginative instinct, which conceived that high places ought to have something of the dizzy and perilous poise of a precipice. It is this vertigo of responsibility which was once the price of power. It is this which has vanished from the vulgar politics of today. It may be a good thing to make the world safe for democracy, but it would be part of the same thing to make it unsafe for demagogues. I have a special reason for making this suggestion, even at this moment. A tragedy like that of Michael Collins fills us so much with distress that there is a danger of its filling us with despair. I would most seriously urge that such a paralysis of pessimism is a profound misunderstanding of so noble a legend. It is not of such deaths that nations die. All history is there to show that the blood of the heroes is as much the seed of the state as the blood of the martyrs of the church. And it would be a melancholy irony if we were found mourning of the death of Ireland after the awful amputation by which she has lost her right hand, while we ourselves were dying even as we mourned from a deeper disease creeping through all our bones. It would be a bitter jest if Ireland were left for dead because of such massacres as raged around the foundation of the Roman Empire and the French Republic, while England looked down in pity upon her from that gilded sarcophagus which was a final monument for Carthage or for Venice. And it is because I care much more about England than about Ireland that I cannot keep out of my ears the echo of an ancient voice. Weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. I know that there are many for whom such a reversal of sympathies will still seem almost grotesque. Anyone who chooses may misinterpret it as an apology for anarchy or a fanatical exaggeration of our own political scandals. Only somebody with a sense of the right uses of the fantastic would understand the symbol. If I were to suggest that the relations of England and Ireland sometimes remind me of the humorous passage in De Quincey, where he says that he finds it very hard to steer a rational middle course between the extremes of too much murder on the one hand and too little on the other. But since I have discovered, as De Quincey did, that some people are not quite serious enough to understand a joke, I will put my meaning in about as serious a fashion as it is possible to put it. Catholics say that there are four sins crying to heaven for vengeance, and two of them are murder and the oppression of the poor. It is true to say that the Irish commit the one only too often, and the English commit the other all the time. End of section 33 Recording by Arden